Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Episode 37. Unbelievable. Still rolling, haven't been canceled yet. Um, no, and you know, 37 used to be a big number, but at least if you're going by like home run totals in baseball this year, 37 just ain't what it used to be. Uh, is, the, is the ball juiced? Uh, you know, is the ball juiced? Are the so, seams, like, is, is there something about the seams? The seams are tighter? Some, uh, you know, tighter, looser, whichever one makes the ball go farther. ERAs are not up, but home runs are. Today, I, mean, I actually think later today we're going to set the all-time record for home runs in a season. Uh, and and in, a, in a not very exciting way, really. No, no. Yeah, this is not a great formula. But you know what, Bobby? We actually have some national security news. You're right. Let's focus, Steve. <laughs> Come on, focus. So here, here we are, Tuesday, September 19th. It's about 10.45 Central Time in the morning. Um, there's some stuff going on, starting with Paul Manafort and FISA. Yeah, Paul Manafort has conspired to put FISA back in the news. Hey, hey, hey. And he, we'll talk about that in a moment. and then we'll, He was wiretapped. He was, he was tapped. He was tapped in Trump Tower. Seriously. We will talk about that, and then we will pivot over to some uh, news that broke last uh, last week that has been strangely quiet over the weekend. That is that uh, an American citizen fighting with the Islamic State uh, in Syria was captured by Syrian Democratic Forces or SDF forces and apparently turned over to U.S. forces. There was an initial bubble of attention to this. And it's been radio silence ever since. I, I've been so I, I tweeted this this morning. Like I'm really surprised at the radio silence because to me, and I, I suspect you agree, Bobby. Every day that passes without this guy, whoever he is, I don't think we still even know his name. No, we don't. Showing up in a U.S. federal court makes us a more interesting legal question. Well, I can't say I'm I'm not surprised he's not shown up in a court here yet, though I agree that it does increase the uh, the, the legal leverage, if you will, in this situation. But I'm very surprised that we're not seeing sort of a drumbeat of commentary and, and inquiry about this. So uh, we'll talk about that in some detail. Then uh, back to uh, the travel ban litigation, Steve. Yes, there were there were a few amicus briefs filed yesterday. I think the total is up, up near 90, um, but also uh, one near and dear to my heart because I kind of wrote parts of it. <laughs> okay, so we'll hear, we'll hear what you wrote and what others have been talking about, and we'll pivot from there since we'll be on the subject of the role of the courts and deferring to the executive branch or not deferring in security-themed cases. We'll pivot over to this conference we uh, hosted here in Austin just last week. And courts at war. It's a, it was a Chatham House rules affair, so we can't talk about what was said, but we can give some general reflections. And uh, we spent a day and a half with some wonderful people, and we'll talk about that at a and high e- level. And, and each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there was also and, uh, us. Also uh, much so. more there were also breakfast tacos, so that offset us. And and then we'll conclude with some frivolity. Um, maybe some, some Star Trek-themed frivolity in honor of this weekend's premiere of Star Trek Discovery. Discovery. And I have a book to recommend. So, oh, well, yeah. in that case, we have, we have lots to look forward to. So, <laughs> and also, I will not be able to resist saying a few things about UT's uh, game against USC the other night. So I'm just going to say this right now. In the first quarter, when you know it was clear that, that, that Texas actually had shown up to play, yeah. I turned to Karen and I said, this is the exact kind of game where we're going to be in it right till the end and we're going to lose like 24 to 23 on like a missed extra point. Oh, really? I literally said wow. that in the first quarter. Wow. Oh, I'm impressed. Now, it ended up not being a missed extra point, but, no, but same it, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it was, I'll tell you this. It was great football. It was really good drama. That was a really fun game to watch. Still a loss. Terrible outcome. Yeah. All right. Um, so speaking of, well, maybe not terrible outcomes. I don't know if that segue works. Paul Manafort is back okay. in the news. All right, Steve. So uh, what was the story that, that broke yesterday? I guess there was a couple of stories that all dropped. Uh, New York Times and CNN both were uh, busily making news yesterday. Uh, so I think they I think they had different parts of the story independently. And when CNN broke theirs, New York Times just pushed the button on theirs. Right. Um, and the, the sort of, I'm going to botch the timeline, but the sort of short version is that at various different points, the government had obtained both ordinary and FISA warrants for Paul Manafort, um, and that indeed that they had been tapping Manafort at various points during the campaign, which may in fact have included times when he was in Trump Tower. Okay, so this obviously touches on a, a variety of themes from La, La Felle Rousse. Um, the thing that we can add value on, I think, is to just clarify, what's the significance? What does it mean to say that there was not one, but two, apparently two different FISA, FISA court yeah. orders authorizing electronic surveillance of his communication? So um, as I understood the story, Steve, there's there's point in time one 
in which the nature of the government's interest, we are told, was that Manafort was working with a Ukrainian political party. Um, This is not a news story. It's been long known that he had various degrees of involvement, basically acting on behalf of of the interest, trying to promote in the United States the interest of this Ukrainian political party. That's the sort of thing he did for his work. The the legal problem arises in that he didn't register as an agent of a foreign power. It was the violation, allegedly, of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Now, that obviously sets up, as I just framed it, as a criminal investigative matter. But of course, if you're talking about someone acting as an agent of a foreign political party, that naturally also sets up as a potential foreign intelligence surveillance scenario. And no real surprise here, I think, Steve. Um, What we learned here was that there was indeed a FISA court order, and this would be under Title I, under sort of traditional 1978 original FISA. This is not a Section 702 story, let alone a 12333 story. Good old-fashioned FISA. Yeah, and and what does that mean? It means that the government had to go before an Article III judge who was serving on the FISA court, we don't know which one, make a showing that there is probable cause to believe that Paul Manafort was an agent of a foreign power. And all that, and, and, the, and we know now that the, the judge agreed and issued the order authorizing the surveillance, which... So, so with regard yeah. to the first one, right, the foreign power question is probably Ukraine? Right. Well, a Ukrainian political Ukrainian party political in particular, party, as right. not necessarily the Ukrainian government. In no, fact, no. I think it was the party it was the out of power. Yeah. Right. So that, that to me is sort of unremarkable, and it doesn't directly connect up with the much more interesting parts of the the current controversies with Russia. What we're told in the story is that that order was granted, collection duly occurred. This is, I think, before he was campaign, uh, had his campaign role for Trump. And then after a certain period of time, these things have set periods of time, it expired and was not renewed ostensibly because it wasn't bearing enough fruit to be worth renewal. Um, So then that surveillance, the foreign intelligence surveillance ends. But then something happens, and they go back up on a FISA. They get a new FISA order, and this time it's on the basis of a different foreign connection. This time, something through some other means of collection drew the attention to the pos- of, of investigators to the possibility that Manafort was collaborating with the Russian government. And this time, we're told, a second FISA court order is issued. This has nothing to, directly to do with the Ukrainian political party. Now the concern is connection to the Russians. And the fact, again, the fact that the FISA court judge issued the order tells us that at least one Article Three judge was persuaded that the government had prob- enough evidence to establish probable cause to believe Paul Manafort was an agent of a foreign power. A, which a, one? Different, a different one. A different one. This, in this case, acting as an agent on behalf of the Russian government. That's a big deal. Is that That's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not preponderance in the evidence. It's probable cause. But it's not good. It's not good. So, so I guess the question is, Twofold, right? First, um, this is not right vindication of the Devin Nunes manufactured Trump was wiretapped by Obama claim, right? <laughs> Certainly not. No, it's, <laughs> if the claim is uh, that Paul Manafort was wiretapped, yes, indeed, and that's not a good thing. And that and, and to tout it and say, ah, they were spying on Manafort. Well, the right way to frame it is. Not once, but twice, federal judges were persuaded that the government had probable cause to believe that this guy was acting as an unregistered agent of a foreign power. First, a Ukrainian political party, then Vladimir Putin's government. Right. So so Michael Flynn Jr., my favorite Twitterer, tweeted yesterday, hmm, I wonder who else was tapped. Right. Um, and my, oh, which side is he on? Is well, he? Right. So my response to that was, given that the standard is probable cause to believe that the subject is an agent of a foreign power, that answer should be quite revealing. It, it certainly would be. I, I think it's great to know who else was tapped. Of course, actually, it's not all that great to know these details. Yeah, yeah. This is, I will point out, this is an example of just the ongoing leaking of information that really uh, should be the province of the Mueller investigation and the congressional investigations I agree, and the grand jury investigation. I agree, although I think it was I think it was our friends on Lawfare in their post who suggested that the leak here doesn't look like it's coming from Mueller's camp. No, that's right. That's the idea. Is you don't assume that, and people do tend to assume that ah, it's always the deep state leaking. Um, there's there's all sorts of possibilities. A lot of individuals including, uh, for various reasons, it could be Manafort's own people, someone affiliated with his own defense who's doing this. All right, so any larger significance from this? So I guess, to me, this is all sort of part of the growing crescendo that suggests to me that there is a that there are a whole bunch of shoes that are going to drop sometime in the not-too-distant future, right? That, that if this stuff is starting to come out, we saw the sort of very awkward... Ty Cobb, John Dowd, you know, bro lunch at BLT Steak in D.C. 
Oh, that was, <laughs> right? that was, like, that you was know, unfortunate. It, it was unfortunate, but but I take all of these points, Bobby, as sort of data points building towards some kind of explosion of news. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that there's certainly this sense, and in, in, in I think, you know, some of the stuff, the way Ben tweets with the cannons and all that, you get this sense of like, ah, oh, there's, there's this constant erosion, and then one of these stories is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back, or we reach the tipping point, and then all hell breaks loose. Um there's another narrative, though, that says what happens is people get inured to this. Mm-hmm. Every day there's some story like this, blah, 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 who can keep up? And you lose the ability to be shocked because it just kind of accumulates day by day. Maybe, but what we haven't had yet is an indictment. And and I think that that indictment's right. maybe nigh. Well, and that's why I think actually one of the most interesting parts of the stories that broke uh, yesterday uh, was the suggestion that somebody, some unnamed official, may have said to either Manafort or his team, you're going to be indicted. Right. Now, did that really occur? Who knows? If it did occur, was it just said by somebody who or really had no bluster? authority? Was it bluster? Who knows? Um, or was it a calculated warning that, listen, just this is coming? Um, if and when it gets here, that's a big deal. And of course, that that sets in motion the, the big stakes question. Mm-hmm. Will Paul Manafort Will Mike Flynn, will one of these central figures, who right now is certainly not in a posture presumably of cooperating, will they, under the pressure of the indictment, flip? And will they cut a deal and begin cooperating? That's when the water uh, boils much, uh, much hotter. Is that a phrase, boiling much hotter? You get the point. The temperature turns up. The temperature turns up. Well, and let me say, and I think it also is when you're going to see more pressure on the sort of you know, does Trump try to fire Mueller? Exactly. Um, and to that end, I mean, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to be holding a hearing next Tuesday on these two competing bills that would actually protect Mueller to some degree, right? So we'll see how that goes and if that oh, goes anywhere. I wasn't familiar with this. What are these bills about? So, um, right, there's the, what, there's the Graham Booker bill and then there's the Tillis Coons bill, um, which are these bipartisan efforts to create some kind of statutory protection for the special counsel. So to take the existing special counsel regulations and to actually make it harder for the special counsel to be removed in both cases without at least some judicial oversight. Yeah, of course, Trump will never sign such a bill. Um, No, but um, a veto of that bill might provoke enough of a reaction to to actually have I mean these are bipartisan right as, as the name yeah. suggests I mean Graham Booker yeah. Coons, I, I agree you know, putting him in a position after veto that you know continues it'll it'll further erode the plausibility and, of and there might come a point where there where where, where you get veto proof supermajorities of both houses that would pass such now, bills yeah now that that my friend would be interesting indeed um, you know he signed the Russia sanctions bill. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that that didn't cut nearly as close to the bone. True. As this no, 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 that's right. That's right. So, so all this is to say, interesting things are happening. Absolutely, it continues to be fascinating. We will continue to watch it. What else should we continue to watch? Uh, this apparent John Doe U.S. citizen detainee somewhere in the world. Yeah. Okay. So, um, somewhere in Syria, we were told there is at some point. I think they were said to have surrendered. Yes, to a U.S. SDF. a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Uh, the allegation is, or the, or the claim is, that he was a an Islamic State fighter who was among a group that fell into SDF custody. This is an SDF force that is among those... Uh, SDF you know, being the Syrian Defense Syrian, Forces. Is it Defense Forces or Democratic Forces? I, I don't, don't know. know. Maybe Democratic. I should know this. I don't. SDF Forces. The, 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 the anti-Assad. U.S.-friendly proxy forces on the ground there. Uh, this was, uh, I think one story I read said, this was you know, one of the Kurdish groups, not the... Not the, um, not the uh, Peshmerga, but some other group in Syria. So Syrian Kurds probably. In any event, they figure out they've got a person who's apparently a U.S. citizen. And at least one of the reports confirmed, I think a DOD spokesperson confirmed that person is now being held. Uh, I think as, it's Spencer Ackerman. Uh, confirmed to Spencer Ackerman at, and said this person, and they used the phrase, held as an unlawful, did they say unlawful enemy no, combatant? They, said, enemy, they mil- just said military detention as an enemy combatant. Right. Okay. So so no question, this is this is asserting the authority to detain without criminal charge under color of the law of armed conflict. Um, you know, the same model we use at Guantanamo, the same model that's been controversial in the past when applied to U.S. persons. So a host of interesting questions mm. arise. You know, first and foremost, what is the Trump administration going to do with this person? What is their, we, we've been told what their status is right at this moment, but we're still in this preliminary phase, depending on how long they've been in U.S. custody. Um, what might the administration try to do? And how well would it hold up legally if they try one of the more exotic or controversial options? So maybe, Steve, we could map out the array of possibilities. I mean, what are the options for the administration in terms of 
not what they've done so far, but what they should do starting today with this person. So it seems like there are four options to walk through, right? And let me let me list the four just to make sure we're on the same page before we start deconstructing them. Okay. Um, so I think the the easiest option legally and perhaps least politically controversial um, is the sort of what you might call the Warsame or hybrid model, right? Where what the administration would do is keep this guy in sort of short-term military detention but fairly soon thereafter, um, move him in some way, shape, or form into the United States, charge him criminally, Mirandize him, give him a lawyer, put him in the criminal defense system for all intents and purposes, where the sort of short-term detention was really just anticipatory of the criminal case. We and, see, I'm sorry, okay. it just and, and there could be interrogation pre-Miranda warning during that phase, as is presumably happening right as we speak. And, and the courts, at least thus far, have not seen a problem with that. Okay. Okay. Um, the second possibility, and this is where things start getting very interesting, is longer-term military detention, um, right? Uh, we have had no long-term military detention of U.S. citizens since 2008, right? And if you don't even count Iraq, we've had no long-term detention of a U.S. citizen really since Jose Padilla was indicted and transferred in January of 2006. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why this would be a big deal potential test case, both with regard to the power to detain a U.S. citizen and the question we have discussed so many times on this podcast about whether the AUMF covers ISIS. Right. Um, okay. Third possibility is the military commissions, right? So the Military Commissions Act of 2006 only talks about non-citizens but there's still the residual standby military commission authority from World War II, codified at uh, 10 U.S.C. Section 821, which would allow a U.S. citizen to be tried by a military commission so long as the crimes were clearly established international war crimes. That is, of course, the Kieran precedent. Um, fourth, I think, is Bobby's favorite uh, pastime, proxy detention, right? <laughs> if we don't really want to deal with him, we find somebody else to hold right. him. So I think let's just... Note and dismiss that one really quickly. Because he's a citizen. I don't think there's the slightest chance. Yeah. And, and someone asked us on our one of our Twitter feeds today, you know, might we try to outsource the problem? Not with a citizen, not and certainly not when it's known and being talked about publicly already. So, so no question in my mind, this person stays in U.S. control. Um, I mean, I suppose it's possible. It's the Trump administration. You could have a pretty wild outcome where if they can link him to some crime, they think the Iraqis are the – well, they're not going to turn him over to the you know to Damascus. No. So it would have to be the Iraqi government to <laughs> hey, prosecute. But if, if – we can imagine a fact pattern where it turns out like they actually have reason to believe this guy committed a crime under Iraqi law and, and – They'd still want they'd still want to prosecute him here. I would think so. Okay. I would think so. So let's, let's set aside that. Okay. Um, I, think we can, I actually think we can also set aside military commissions. I don't think that this is going to be the test case for reinvigorating the wholly different World War II era you know, yeah. military commission model. I, I agree with that. And so just to underscore the point, the, reason, the main reason you're not going to see this person showing up at Guantanamo to be prosecuted by military commission is the Military Commissions Act of 2009, which is the governing statute here, explicitly limits its personal jurisdiction in effect to non-citizen. Although we've talked before about how it's not really personal jurisdiction. Indeed, but uh, having set that nuance aside, you have to be you have to be a non-citizen. You have to be a non-citizen. And as Steve says, there is a way you could try to do it anyways under the older sort of the default uh, precedents. Um, I'd be shocked. You have to. I mean, you have to reinvent the wheel to do that, and it's not clear why this person who we've never heard of, we still don't even know who he is, would be the case to do that. Well, actually, we should unpack this detail more. So, as as you explained it to me, I really didn't understand this very well until you explained it to me. Um, This what we might call the residual statutory authority to convene a military commission uh, for any person who could be tried, who could otherwise be prosecuted for a violation of the law of armed conflict. Um, that authority could extend to a citizen because it's not defined in statute to be to exclude citizens. Um, but it's only going to pick up what would be a violation of the law of armed conflict. And it's important for listeners to recall that um, conspiracy charges, material support charges, solicitation charges, as distinct from killing a civilian on purpose, killing a prisoner, that sort of thing, um, there is ongoing litigation about whether the military commissions can pursue those in co-ed offenses, but only because they were enacted as chargeable offenses in the 2009 Military Commissions Act statute. The government is not claiming that at this point that those are actually violations of the law of war as such. And so those charges presumably would clearly not be available, presumably, clearly, in any event. We don't think they'd be available if you tried to use this residual authority. And therefore, you could only pursue that option if you wanted to, most likely, if you could link this particular detainee to having 
killed a prisoner, done something like that. Now, maybe they've got maybe they've got that kind of evidence, or they will. But we have no we know nothing other than the allegation that he was fighting with the Islamic State. So we shouldn't assume that they can link him to you know some uh, some. IS atrocity, though there are plenty of people you, you could. So if that's true, that seems that like the most interesting legal question is what if they keep holding him in military detention? That's going to be big, right? And, and there's a sliding scale. Mm-hmm. But what if they hold him a few more days, a few more weeks, a few more months? When is it long term? For the ease of argument, let's just assume that they, they issue a statement saying like, our plan is we're keeping him as an enemy combatant. For the duration. Okay, so a few and, and, and if I may, just yeah, uh, yeah. before we get into the analysis, and, and litigation may force that issue because there may well be a habeas petition filed on the behalf of the detainee as soon as there's more information about who, who and where is. he is. Right, right. So let's actually start there to talk about how the courts, because because I think we agree, the courts certainly are going to be involved, whether they intend to hold him long term or they just simply keep holding him for the duration without making a commitment. There is mounting, there will be, if not already, mounting likelihood of judicial involvement. And I think we both agree there's no question that there can and would be because he's a citizen. It doesn't that's, matter that he's held there. That's right. And so, you know, the, the jurisdiction stripping provisions of the Military Commissions Act, although it's still not clear which cases beyond Guantanamo it would apply to, I think it's quite clear that a citizen is not covered by those provisions. And so a citizen detained by the U.S. anywhere in the world would have access to federal court um, through a writ of habeas corpus. And Steve, does it matter that in this case the government could say, ah, but here he's being held in what is clearly a zone of active combat operations? Not for jurisdiction, right? I mean, so for subject matter jurisdiction, the answer would be no. Now, I'm sure the court would be a little more forgiving of, say, the timetable, right, and of any sort of deadlines for filing and would not be in a hurry to expedite the petition. But that's just a question of how the case proceeds, not whether it can. Okay, so we both agree that in contrast to any other non-citizen detainees from the Islamic State, we may have similarly acquired custody of, and obviously there's been some of that, although we never get public details about it. Um, We agree that the courts can and will get involved, but of course they can't inject themselves in it. Someone's got to file a a petition Mm -hmm. for a writ of habeas corpus. Um, let's will you share a few thoughts on why this hasn't happened already and what is cumbersome about the practical circumstances. So I, I suspect that it hasn't happened yet because those who might file such a pleading are still trying to figure out who this guy is. Um, so usually it, it is possible to file a John Doe habeas petition, but it's difficult um, because you have to show the lawyers have to show that they have some basis for representing the individual. Yeah, who are they to do it? So Hamdi provides a good example here, right? The Hamdi case started as a habeas petition filed by the federal public defenders for the Eastern District of Virginia before they'd ever met Hamdi, right? Back when Hamdi was still being held incommunicado in a Navy brig, the key was they got the permission of Hamdi's father to proceed as Hamdi's, quote, next friend, unquote. And so I think right, the question is, once there's some idea of who this detainee is, could they receive similar permission from a family member to proceed on behalf of the detainee as their next friend? So if you're the government, that's a, perhaps an incentive not to publish the name of this individual. There are other reasons as well, including intelligence collection reasons, so that you don't make clear to this person's known confederates uh, that, yep, that's the one you got. However, there is this additional factor, like don't say the name, and therefore that, that will prevent somebody from going and finding a relative of that person person who says, yep, I'll, I'll authorize the representation, which creates the possibility, if, if the doctrine doesn't give way somewhere, that the government could just never give the name and therefore no one ever sues. That can't be the answer. Yeah. I, I, something tells me that a court would actually perhaps require the government to identify the detainee at some point. It's interesting, right? Though it does mean that there, ha- there at, at some outer limit, there must be some ability to for some uh, group of lawyers to interject themselves entirely on their own well, motion. And, and the media might beat themselves to it, right? I mean, I have no doubt that there are reporters trying to figure out who this guy is. Yeah, yeah. And so it's quite possible that wholly apart from the government's interests and plans, you know, yeah. enough people know who this person is, that there is a U.S. citizen in Syria, right? I mean, someone's going to yep. follow the breadcrumbs. So so insight number one is we may be in, if the, if the status quo continues, where it's just a news blackout, we're probably going to be in sometime sooner rather than later for a round of uh, threshold litigation um, involving probably reporters trying to pry the information out, and then separately, um, you know, Center for Constitutional Rights or somebody appearing in court um, with with no actual ba- authorization from a relative or fr- next friend of the client, but, but trying to obtain it. 
trying to obtain it? And that's kind of an interesting question, especially if, well, what if three or four different uh, NGO type groups show up and all say, well, we, we're here to represent this unnamed person. No, 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 we are. Well, so, I mean, I, I do think that CCR, I mean, you mentioned CCR, and I think CCR actually might have a unique claim here because they really have positioned themselves and been recognized by courts as the sort of coordinators of almost all of the detainee litigation. That probably gives them a leg up if they're doing it. If they want to do it. I mean, I, you know, I, I have no inside information, right? But all this is to say, you know, one way or the other, if this person is going to be held in continuing U.S. military detention, it's just a question of when, you know, yeah. this the habeas petition clears these threshold hurdles, not if. Well, I agree with that. But, you know, it, when you think about this, if the government wants to play hardball on this, it could drag out quite a bit, right? Cause, to a so, point. So, so the, the issue comes before a district judge, district judge rules, government appeals, goes to the circuit. We could be in for a little little round. Now, whether they're going to resist in any of these ways, that we're just speculating, but they might. I mean, they need mandamus from the D.C. Circuit, presumably, because it would be an interlocutory appeal on a preliminary yeah. ruling. Yeah. I, I have a hard time seeing it. I mean, listen, the you know, there's a weird... Um, habeas case from the 1980s about John Demyanyuk, Ivan the Butcher, yeah, yeah. Um, who was being held somewhere where the, the, the federal government refused to identify right where they were holding him pending his extradition for what they said were security reasons. I have, I have no trouble believing that. Yeah, they, they were going to extradite him to Poland, I think it was? Something like that. But they didn't want, they didn't want to say where in the United States he was being held. Yeah. Um, or not Poland, it was the 80s, so it was probably to Israel? I, you know, I, I don't remember. Yeah. Anyways, if, I, if I guess I'm neither here wrong. nor there. Right. Um, and and the, the government said, well, since we're not telling you where we're holding him, right, no court has jurisdiction. <laughs> right, right. And the D.C. Circuit said, you have got to be kidding me. Like, right, right. you concede he is in your custody. Right. Right. Therefore, we have power to hear this habeas petition because we have power over you, the jailer. So I totally agree and, and agree indeed that the courts ultimately are going to side with whichever representative body's trying to step in to represent this John Doe's interest. But it'll be, it could potentially be a delaying mechanism Maybe. that causes some fraud. <clears throat> okay, so we move beyond that. And let's say the government's position is either because it's forced out of them or because they go public with it. We're going to hold this person. So there's a practical question of where are they going to do this? Yes. We don't have a long-term detention facility overseas anymore. However, if it's just the one guy, or it's just a few people, then whatever temporary screening facilities, uh, TSFs, or in-theater facilities we've got um, somewhere in effect behind the lines in the Syria-Iraq theater um, could be the location. They could Wherever that person is right this moment, they could just stay there. Yeah, although it buys the government very little, right? Because at least in the case of the non-citizen detainees, holding them in theater, as we saw in the Bagram cases, actually allowed the government to avoid jurisdiction. Not going to work here. Right. And so, right, so as in the Hamdi case, I'm not sure it's in the government's interests to continue to hold the detainee in theater versus just moving them into the U.S. Well, here's a counter-argument. So I agree completely that the jurisdiction attaches either way. But uh, the bite of the review, with Guantanamo, you lose all the trappings of, hey, this is a combat zone. The jailers are in the, in the thick of a combat zone. It, it's, it's easy to assimilate it to, look, you might as well be in Florida. Mm -hmm. Guantanamo, same difference. You're, you're right there. It's, there's no surrounding circumstance of, of danger, whereas in theater there is. And I wonder if they might not keep this person in theater to maximize the extent to which the eventual mm. review of the factual predicates is deferential. All right, so I've got one. I've got a counter-argument to your counter-argument. Good. Um, do you know what circuit has no law on U.S. citizen military detention? The Syria circuit? The, 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 <laughs> the D.C. circuit. Ah. Right? Um, D.C. circuit's never had, or at least not since 9-11, right? None of the D.C. circuit's military detention cases are U.S. citizen cases. Right. Padilla was elsewhere. The, the, the Almari was not a U.S. citizen, but was a U.S. capture. No, no, all Hamdi the, was, right. all was all Fourth Circuit. All right? of that law is in the Fourth Circuit. And yeah. if I'm the government, I want that law, right? Because the only one of those opinions that's actually still on the books is the last three-judge panel decision in the Jose Padilla case, um, which is actually, from the government's perspective, not that bad. So I will, I will sir-reply to your reply to my response or whatever it is, uh, and that is that I see the value of going to the circuit where you have at least uh, a splintering of opinions that seem to cut your way, and you don't, and so you have the pig in the poke with the D.C. circuit. You don't know how they're going to come down on this issue. I think that the, the intensity of interest and in the importance of these issues uh, and the splintering of the litigation with, with uh, Padilla in particular is such that you can't even necessarily count on getting the same result out of a fourth circuit that has got a different uh, set of judges at well, the Well, that's certainly today. true, but that's also true yeah. of the D.C. circuit. Yeah, that's true. So all of which I think is is some incentive. I wouldn't be shocked if they say, you know, here's the person's name and we have them at a location in Iraq. 
or in, in Kurdistan in, in or whatever. Undisclosed location over yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, okay, so look for that to be litigated. It'll have an impact. Now, the million-dollar question is... Can um, it be detained? Can it be detained? And, and let's subdivide the topic. There's the question of whether citizenship results in the answer being no when otherwise it might have been yes. And then there's the question where there, the fact that maybe it's not the citizenship that'll be the problem here. Maybe it's AUMF scope. Or maybe it's some combination of the two. Yeah, or something else altogether. So let's talk first AUMF, since that's a familiar topic for us. Um, how does this person's detention, and by the way, this should be understood as a reason for the administration not to keep this guy in detention. Yes. How does detaining this guy potentially finally put before a court the years-old claim of first Obama and now Trump that the 2001 AUMF covers the entire operation against the Islamic State? Um, in the worst possible case, right? right? I mean, so so just to be clear, it is, let's rewind back to the the, the Padilla litigation, right? Um, the courts for a time, and this, some of these cases I don't get wiped off the books, but the courts for a time split the difference, right, on whether the AUMF authorized the detention of U.S. citizens, holding that where the citizen was picked up on the battlefield in Afghanistan, the AUMF was a sufficiently clear statement to satisfy the statute called the Non-Detention Act, right? Yeah. 18 U.S.C. Section 4001A, which says no citizen shall be imprisoned or otherwise detained except pursuant to an act of Congress. Um, so for someone on the battlefield, the AUMF, the Supreme Court says in Hamdi, is enough, right? That's, you know, it's, it's enough of the necessary force that you would use under a statute like that that detention would be part of it. But the Second Circuit says, but not for a citizen picked up in the United States. And so if you map that on to <clears throat> the ISIS question, right, is it possible that the, the argument that the AUMF covers ISIS um, is convincing enough in the abstract, but not in a context where you need a clear statement for detention as you might with a U.S. citizen picked up outside of Afghanistan? Interesting. So you're saying that the two—so there are first— there are two totally different AMF questions, and then there's a blended one. And then you think, and you think that the one may undermine the other. Yes. Okay. Let me let me think through that, and, and in doing so, kind of recap what you said in a way to make sure the listeners are staying with us. So here. it actually makes sense. No, no, it made perfect sense to me. I just hadn't thought about it this way. So the the obvious question with the AMF is. You have does a guy, it cover ISIS at all? Yeah. Does it cover the Islamic State? Um, right now, that question never gets litigated because we have no detainees who have access to habeas who present that question. And, and as we discussed on the podcast before, we both think the answer is yes, although we are we differ in the degrees of, of yeah. uh, the degree to which we think it's convincing. Well, and I always feel like I should confess that when, when I first saw right. that argument way back when the Obama administration first raised it, I thought it was ridiculous. But on reflection over time, I've been persuaded that actually I, the Islamic State is is al-Qaeda in Iraq. They, they just, you know, they, they had the organizational break. But nonetheless, th this question's never been put to a judge. There's litigation risk for the administration that the entire statutory predicate for the multi-year engagement with the Islamic State could suddenly be called into question. So no, matter, why, no matter what. No matter what. So set aside his citizenship. Okay. Why would they want to court this? But you're saying there's a whole separate question that we tend to forget about because we don't often have American citizen detainees. Americans should not be detained according to the Non-Detention Act unless there's an act of Congress. The AUMF, though it didn't say citizens can be detained, was construed in Hamdi to be clear enough if you're talking about a battlefield, combat zone, conventional armed conflict capture. But other courts, lower courts had said, nah, maybe not so if it's captured within the United States. There you need a clearer statement than just the AUMF. So, I think that the circumstances of Syria and the Islamic State are, I think, Beck Ingber and I had an exchange on Twitter that was really interesting about this. Um, and, and she felt that you know, this is potentially different enough. And my view was, no, I think this is pretty analogous. Reasonable minds may differ. I think it's not going to present that the, any different question than Hamdi, but but you don't know. Well, it's and, more and, litigation risk. And, and here's why I think they blend together, Bobby. I think Justice O'Connor... Even though the AUMF didn't say al-Qaeda or the Taliban, and it didn't say Afghanistan, I think a large part of her opinion was based on the premise that the conflict in, Af in Afghanistan was what Congress was contemplating, right, when it passed the AUMF back in September of 2001. The questions merge in this context because even if you think that the context in which John Doe citizen was captured looks more like Afghanistan than O'Hare, right, where Jose Padilla sure. was arrested. Yeah. Um, it's not Afghanistan. It's not al-Qaeda, right? And so it is actually more of a departure from what O'Connor was talking about way back in 2004, 
when she went out of her way to stress the limited nature of the court's analysis. So maybe if it were a pure non-citizen overseas case, right, the court would say, eh, close enough, right? But if you, when you add the layer of the Non-Detention Act, I really do wonder if the court might say, you know, with each step you take away from Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, we needed more of a clear statement from Congress. I, I don't think that's a clear winner, but it's not a clear loser. So I see the distinction you're drawing there based on O'Connor's statement, and she obviously did say what you said. Um, I think that it doesn't, that distinction doesn't come into play here. Yes, she was distinguishing combat zone scenarios and the use of combat power from uh, civilian circumstances of arrest. I don't think that the AOMF was being understood to contemplate Afghanistan specifically as the only place where combat activity would occur. Maybe, although Justice Breyer, in an opinion that really doesn't get enough attention, in a, a statement respecting the denial of certiorari um, in Hussein versus Obama in 2014, went out of his way to remind everybody that the Supreme Court has never addressed whether and in what circumstances the AOMF, the AOMF applies outside of Afghanistan or to groups other than al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Well, and this is a good occasion to note something that's changed since all those prior cases, those those were all sort of first-generation post-9-11 cases when Scalia was still in the court and Antonin Scalia was particularly focused on the special <laughs> circumstances of U.S. citizens True. and struck a very libertarian line in that respect. Um, he is obviously no longer with us, and we, we don't know where Justice Gorsuch is on these types of questions, but it's possible, though by no means certain, that actually uh, the switch there actually results in a less libertarian court on these questions. Oh, I, I don't. I, I think that's likely, um, right? But but the thing about Scalia is right. So Scalia was the fourth vote, right, for um, the detainee in Hamdi. He would have been likely a fifth vote for Padilla on the merits had the court ever reached the merits. Right. Um, but that presupposes that Kennedy would have sided with the government, right? They're still right. so. so I, we don't know. I, I say all of this just to say that if you are worried about the ISIS question, the second to last case you would ever litigate it through is a U.S. citizen captured overseas, right? You would only the only case you'd be even less willing to litigate it through is a U.S. citizen captured in the U.S. Right. So I think we actually come out in the same place, which is certainly the advice of the administration and the prediction is don't do it. Don't you know? I think what'll happen is they'll stretch this out for a little while longer, and it will entirely be a function of a figuring out. Do they have the admissible evidence to prosecute this person, which may or may not depend on how well ongoing at this moment, pre-Miranda, non-Mirandized, no access to counsel, uh, military interrogation is going. And then, then if it's going well and it looks like, okay, so far this guy is admitting things that would establish a material support charge, then when you bring in the FBI clean team and Mirandize him, will he then either waive and, and repeat or not? And if he won't, then you got to figure out, okay, can we get in under a Quarles public safety exception? Can we get into federal court those pre-Miranda statements, which if they come many, you know, a long period after capture and they don't really relate to immediate threats, that's by no means certain. So they may have a real pickle in their hands where they may end up without a firm ability to charge this person. Although I suspect the circumstances of capture and his very presence there presumably will give them the ability to at least get a baseline material support charge. That he was providing himself as personnel. Exactly. Um, so That's I, where this is going to end up. Right. I would just add one more thought to that, which is, unlike all of the other hybrid cases we've seen thus far, where mm -hmm. the crim pro issues have always come out in favor of the government, yeah. um, the difference here is now we have someone who has clearly established constitutional rights from the moment of capture. Right. So in the context right. of people like Warsame or yeah, Abu Katala or Alibi, right, we're talking about folks who may not have constitutional rights until the criminal proceeding begins. And so the courts might not be in a hurry to worry about presentment, Miranda, right. speedy trial, quarrels, all that stuff. Last possibility, and then we'll move on and wrap up. Um, if he's cooperative. Yeah. He could waive all of this. For all we know, they actually have a lawyer involved and they're working on the paperwork or have already settled the paperwork on a cooperation agreement. This person, if it, that's, I think if this thing stays entirely in the dark over time, that's probably what's going on. This person is now cooperating. Or they're taking your, let's just not, you know, deny, 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 deny. Yeah, and they're just going to roll the dice and see how long <laughs> they can put it off. All right. Enough of that. So all this is to say, right, you and I are in agreement that this would be a really awkward test case for yeah. two very big questions, unsettled questions, right, about the scope of the government's detention authority. One last point just to drive it home because I don't think we actually said it. Some of our listeners might be thinking, well, didn't Congress revisit 
the detention authority question and at least clarify some of these matters, <laughs> yeah. right, in the, the fiscal year, right, in the FY 2012 NDAA. And all I say to that is, you know, one of the really <sighs> awkwardest things that happened in the NDAA was Section 1021E, known as the Feinstein Amendment, <laughs> which was basically a deal that was made to ensure that the 2012 NDAA was interpreted to do absolutely nothing to the status quo when it came to the detention of U.S. persons. Um, now, some folks said, see, we've banned the detention of U.S. No, persons. not at all. No, no. No. Some folks said, see, you've authorized detention of U.S. persons. No. All that the NDA does is freeze the unclear status quo. Exactly so. Oh, well. So, all right, there we go. This will, We'll be back on this one, I'm sh- quite sure. All right, so speaking of courts, we want to talk briefly about the yep. travel ban. Um, so yesterday was the day for amicus briefs in support of the respondents. Again, keep in mind, right, the respondents are the plaintiffs. So the International Refugee Assistance Project et al. and the state of Hawaii et al. Um, I think by some count, there were about 90 amicus briefs. You know, that's a lot, Bobby. Yeah, that's... I pity the people that have to pour over these things. With a Mickey like these, oh, come on, the justices aren't going to read all of them. They're gonna, <laughs> I didn't say the justices. Well, but like they're going to, I mean, what they're going to do is they're going to look at the cover and say, oh, who wrote this brief? Should I read it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so fortunately for me, the counsel of record on our amicus brief is Seth Waxman. Ah, that will get you read. Um, and not only will get us read, but I believe we are the only bottom side amicus brief arguing about mootness. Oh, so actually, that's pretty remarkable that you managed to do something that's a unique contribution in hey, the context hey, hey. of 90. Um, so, so what our brief basically argues, just to just to sort of drive the point home, is that the cases are either already moot, about to become moot on September 27th when the 90 days from the Supreme Court's June 26th order expires, or in the case of the refugee suspension, going to become moot on October 23rd when the 120-day clock runs, um, and that therefore the Supreme Court, barring any new action from the executive branch should not reach the merits of these cases. Finally, we turn to the sort of Fed court's nerdy question of whether the proper remedy at that point is to vacate the decisions below or just dismiss certiorari. Um, And we say that because the mootness in this case was, if anything, a result of conscious, voluntary, substantive and litigation decisions by the government, it would be inappropriate to vacate the decisions below because it would allow the government to sort of get away with it. Okay. Um, Uh, Well, you know, obviously this brief could itself become moot if between now and the oral argument the government does something to reinvigorate the travel ban. But I think it's important to have this out there for why we really do think there's a strong argument that the case is moot and why the right disposition at that point is not just an instinctive vacateur of what the Fourth and Ninth Circuits ruled. So what do you think is most likely to occur? Uh, listen, the the variable in the room is the president, right? Is the president <laughs> going to do something between now and the oral argument on October 10th that tries to extend, reinvigorate, you know, prolong what are otherwise expiring provisions of his own executive order? If he doesn't, I don't know why the court wouldn't be ecstatic to use mootness as a justification for ducking the messy, complicated, yeah. ugly political merits of this dispute. And then the question just becomes vacateur or not, right? Like, right. you know, so yes, they say the cases are moot. Do they leave the Fourth and Ninth Circuit decisions in place or do right. they wipe them off the books? Right. That's what our brief was trying to address. Okay. Well, so watch this space. Watch this space. And watch that Twitter feed. Um, and, and an oral argument, watch for discussions of the Waxman brief. <laughs> exactly. I'll know. That'll be a new bingo. Seriously. Waxman uh, brief. All right. So I th- does that conclude our substantive? And I think we're going to say just a quick word about our conference. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So speaking of the role of the courts, we had this conference where we courts at war. Yeah, courts at war. It was here in Austin. It was a it was a wonderful day and a half of uh, surveying a variety of different lenses through which we think about the ways that courts get involved in national security related cases. There were there were you know sessions that were sort of focused on FISA and the FISC. Of course, you had a session focused on criminal. Uh, prosecutions, uh, and you had civil remedies coming up, uh, certainly a, a topic near and dear to your heart in particular, <laughs> Steve. Um, you all, know, from all, all sort of loosely organized around this question of like, you know, what's the appropriate role for courts in national security cases, and are they vindicating it? Right, and in questions of deference, obviously, we're shooting through the whole thing. Something near and dear to your heart. Indeed. I, I would say my main reaction, obviously, we can't talk about the particulars of what was said. Chatham House rules. Chatham House rules. But I, I will say this. We went out of our way to populate the panels and sessions with uh, federal judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, academics, uh, NGO lawyers, 
And, and I thought that mix really paid out again and again and again. What I thought was the unique contribution that was, that was coming out of this was uh, getting people out of their comfort zones by putting in forceful advocates who are speaking from experience, interacting with people who have, you know, academics like us who just have the leisure to sit back and think bigger picture, longer term. Um, I thought that was fruitful. I thought it was very fruitful. And actually, I think, that, you know, although I know the Chatham House rules are frustrating to outsiders because it means that we couldn't really podcast it or li- or webcast it or stream the video, I actually think it made the conversation much more dynamic. Oh, absolutely. And that, that came up again and again with some of the, especially the judges, the judges. saying, you know, obviously, I, you know, and, what and I'm prosec- saying here. And, and yeah. prosecutors. Oh, yeah. So so what I took away from the conference, and I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, yes, we agree. It was great. It was fantastic. It was fun. Um, what do we do going forward, right? And what I took away from the conference is that Insofar as there are obstacles to as much of a judicial role as as I at least might like in the national security space, a lot of those obstacles go far beyond sort of national security specific phenomena mm-hmm. um, and are more systemic and systematic with regard to difficulties, changes in how we envision the judicial role, difficulties in ex- uh, extant doctrine. Um, and that the reforms that might be necessary are actually bigger and more structural than simply, you know, teaching judges how to handle classified information. And would you agree that, therefore, these are less likely to actually materialize? Yeah, which I think is unfortunate. But also, you know, less likely to materialize, but, it, but maybe if there's a salutary upside, maybe we can stop sort of being so obsessed with national security exceptionalism. I was about to say that exact phrase. Right, that, that, that it's not, that, that the reason why cases like these aren't necessarily getting the merits is not because of the unique incompetence of the judiciary right. when it comes to national security cases, but rather because of a host of generalized factors that have specific applications to national security cases That's right. in this respect. But also in other areas. And I feel like that, that actual, that theme came out more than a few times. More than a few times. Yeah. Um, it's a depressing note to end on, but I think it's also helpful at least in pushing back. You know, when you get an opinion that says we can't do this because of national security, and you're like, that doesn't seem right, the answer may not be, therefore we can do it, right? The answer may be, no, 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 there are sort of, this is part of a larger sort of current understanding of the relevant role of courts vis-a-vis the political branches. So uh, ending our substantive conversation there and wanting to wrap up quickly, but not without trivia. Trivia. And and, uh, frivolity. Star Uh, Trek Discovery. So there's a new Star Trek series that premieres on Sunday night. I'm doing the Vulcan. I'm doing the Live Long and Prosper. Right back back at you, buddy. All right. So, you know, it's it's tempting. I'm skeptical this is going to be able to, you know, the, there's always the question, can you capture the magic? Well, and, a little and, doubtful. And it's a bad sign that it's premiering on CBS All Access. Oh, is, I didn't know that. Oh, I, I, maybe the maybe the actual pilot is on the network, but the rest of it's going to be on the streaming service. Oh, really? It's not actually going to air on I, a regular I, network. I, I thought schedule? it was. I, I thought it was going to be like airing regularly on yeah. like on the internet. Well, could be a sign of you know the continuing decline of, of broadcast network uh, significance, but I don't know that that doesn't show a lot of faith on their part that it's going to draw ratings. So, so Bobby, what's your favorite Star Trek series? Um, so, actually, I, I wanted to start with the movie question oh. before. But we, but the movie's easy, right? The be, what's the best movie? Two, two. Now, there, this isn't objection. There's no objective room for disagreement. Here. Right. I, I mean, listen. There are lots of answers, right? One of them is correct, and the rest of them are all wrong. There you go. There you go. There's <laughs> nothing really more to say about that. Uh, Ricardo Montalban's, you know, truly one of his uh, great career accomplishments, in my I, opinion. I, I think you could have a fight about what the second best movie is. Interesting. Um, yeah. What would you say? I think six. As long as you stay on even numbers, I'm not going to gripe about it. I really do subscribe to that that view. Um, the the although odds. although although I mean, what eight is first contact? Um, so, so you get past ten is nemesis. I think you have to sort of like kind of separate out the original sort of the original run of original crew movies, and then there's all the stuff that, that comes later. So 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 up to generations, and then it all just falls apart. Yeah yeah, and that's why I'm worried about you know this attempt to reboot the franchise. Like, w- what place is this coming from? What need in the in the uh, cinematic or the uh, narrative universe is being filled well, here? Do you like any of the three new movies? Um, yeah. They're okay. One of which is also called Star Trek II, the reboot. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're fine. They don't do much for me. Frankly, I'll be very surprised if this can catch, you know, the magic. So my problem with this, so my concern is that the the new show is going to suffer from the same flaw as the new movies, which is that, so my view of the new movies is that they're great action movies. Yeah. And they're they're weak Star Trek movies. Right. And because at the end of the day, it's about character 
in, in narrative. And when you're just rebooting familiar characters and giving them a fresh young face, what's the point? And try to make it pretty. Now, it's interesting that this is at the same time as this other new show that I kept seeing at commercials Orville. for. Orville, yeah. I didn't watch the premiere, but... Uh, but, but you watch football, and therefore, I, you, see, therefore you see the non-stop Orville keep, commercials. You know, Seth MacFarlane's funny and, and creative. I, I wonder if that's going to be more successful. Yeah. Uh, which will really tell you something. It's like, it's like Galaxy Quest, which yeah. I think is an Galaxy, underrated movie. <laughs> I was completely going to say the same thing. Galaxy Quest is at with uh, Alan Rickman and yeah, Tim Allen yeah, and Dirty yeah. Weaver. It's absolutely Tony priceless. Shalhoub. It's quite good. It's quite good. Yeah. Speaking of quite good, I'll, I'll offer my closing uh, frivolity here. I want to give a book recommendation. Ooh. I was recently in Book People, Austin's awesome independent bookstore. And if you're in Austin, you go to Book People. And if you're not, come to Book People. That's right. So um, one of the things I like there is they do a great job of doing staff recommendations. And so I was... You know, passing through the, the the sci-fi and fantasy area, and there's a staff recommendation for something called Kings of the Wild. And on the cover, it looks like your typical, you know, kind of armed band of, you know, uh, sword and sorcery type fighters. And I wandered over to see what it said. And the description basically said, this book by Nicholas Ames uh, takes the idea that what if you have your classic kind of Lord of the Rings type universe and all the armed groups their armed bands. What if they were literally like rock bands? Like they were rock stars, and they had they had sort of a, a band like following. You had booking agents that would hire you to so that you go fight these bad guys here, and you, and you perform. You're considered a celebrity, and and just like have fun with this idea. So I thought, um, you know, I like music. I'll, I'll give this a shot. Um, and I was kind of taken in by glancing through it and seeing that. Clearly, he was he was using the names and some of the weapon descriptions in ways that kept drawing you back to that theme. You know, this one guy in the band has an axe. Yes, like a guitarist got an axe. There's a guy, um, you know, one of the lead the lead character. His his uh, kind of nickname is Slowhand, which you know gestures, of course, to, to Clapton. Intrigued enough to pick it up. This book was actually first rate. It was it was a, just a rock solid, not afraid to be just a standard fantasy book, but with really great character development. And of course, some of the themes were about uh, fathers and daughters, and that should speak to you. It certainly spoke to me. So if you like this kind of stuff, Abu El Banat, go father of uh, what is it? Father of daughters. Father of daughters. Um, go out there and give Nicholas Eames uh, Kings of the Wild a try. You'll you'll be happy. Cool. Um, so, so I have two pieces of frivolity. Um, one is that uh, yesterday I had the great privilege to give the Constitution Day lecture at the University of Oklahoma. I saw that you were up there. I was a little taken aback, but I guess you got to do that sort of thing. You know, I mean, hey, there are friends. On I know. I like ITs. ITs. It's in but, my contract. But I will say that they were a lot happier to see me than you know. I suspect they might have been if our football team were better. <laughs> Well, oh, hello, YouTube you person. There's no, yeah, we have no problem with you. Yeah, oh, um, you looking good. And by the way, apparently, I didn't know this, but they were telling me apparently it's a thing um, where every time OU football team drives down to Dallas for the Red River shootout, the big football game with Texas, um, the Texas state uh, police stop them at the border, the Texas or the Texas Raiders stop at the border and just come on the bus and say, just so you know, y'all in Texas now. <laughs> Did not know that. That's awesome. I um, love that. So that's my first frivolity. All right, um, and that actually the the remarks uh, the title of the talk was uh, "What is a constitutional crisis and are we in one?" Uh-huh. Uh huh. Short answer: It's complicated and not quite yet. Not yet. Not yet. But uh, there might be a video of that soon. My other frivolity, Bobby, is you know we're both pretty busy these days. Lots of work going on. I've commented before on how blissful it's been that the Mets are just crap this year <laughs> because it saved like three hours a day right, yeah, yeah. for my schedule. Yeah. Well, apparently, the New York football giants heard me <laughs> like, and decided to join the party. Did they say, hold my beer? They said, hold my beer <laughs> and hold my offense and, you know, hold my ability to catch <laughs> wide open passes downfield and hold my ability to run a play on fourth and goal from the one without letting on a delay of game penalty, you know. That's and, my the, and then the Cowboys said, "Hold my beer. Let us go and get just waxed." Yeah, but the Cowboys are going to be Broncos. fine. The Giants are. I mean, I guess the Giants. Ugh. So all this is to say, yeah. the Giants appear committed to the project to to project help Steve work. <laughs> and 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 with basketball season around the corner, I'm sure the Knicks are going to do their part as well. Well, I, I I trust that my Spurs will not do that. And if you would just transfer your allegiances as you should, you won't have these problems. But on that note, we should wrap up and let our listeners go if they're still there. And, and you know, I, I, I'm going to put the odds at, at over 50% that something happens between now and Friday to warrant an emergency pod. No kidding. All right. All right. You heard it there you first. You heard it there first. And, and if you don't hear it again, then I'll be wrong. Okay. On that note, stay safe out there, everybody. Adios.